From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's considered a hidden crime, one that's often met with denial. But human trafficking can happen anywhere, and the criminals are tough to spot. I would love to tell you that here's a perfect picture of a trafficker. Unfortunately, they are all just average people who walk the streets just like you and I. How Colorado hopes the public can help stop it. Then there may be fewer worries about social distancing at a new cafe in Golden. The barista is a robot. And a giant-sized Dia de los Muertos display that stretches far beyond tradition. In moments, they laugh. In moments, they cry. Then the Masters Tournament will be different this year. For one, it starts today. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It's a hidden crime that can happen anywhere, in any neighborhood, at any time. Human trafficking knows no social inequities, although it can prey on them and exploit them. She's my cousin. She said she wanted to help us. She said, bring your wife and son. Live and work on our farm. Get out of debt. Come on, we're family. Once we were there... She worked us to the bone without pay. We barely had food. We lived in a trailer. That's not family. That's from a public service announcement, part of an awareness campaign the state of Colorado launches next week. Maria Trujillo is program manager for the Colorado Human Trafficking Council. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In the PSA we just heard, it was an actor's portrayal of a human trafficking survivor based on composite stories of real people. I think many of us see human trafficking as something that happens somewhere else to someone else. What does it mean to be the victim of human trafficking? Sure. Uh, The main kind of thing that brings all victims of human trafficking together is that they had a vulnerability that was exploited by a human trafficker. So all of our narratives really showcase different vulnerabilities that victims experienced that were manipulated and exploited by that trafficker. So one of our stories is of someone who was looking for a partner, who was looking for to be in a relationship, looking for love and affection. And that vulnerability, that desire to make a connection was what the trafficker exploited. And another one of our story, the trafficker was a family member. It was a cousin. And this person had a large amount of debt and wanted to provide for their family. And that cousin, that trafficker, exploited that vulnerability of poverty and a desire to feed their family and take care of them and offer them a job opportunity and then put them in more debt. So it's putting them in a position to do something against their will, ultimately, either involving sex or money. Yes, against their will, they're either defrauded or coerced or 
even forced into these situations. So lots of different levels of power and control dynamics are playing out. And ultimately, they're doing things that they never thought they would be doing in the first place. And they're feeling like they can't leave that situation because of the power and control being taking place. Can you give me another example of a a victim that might fall prey to a trafficker? One of our other storylines is about a young man who came out to his parents as gay and they kicked him out of the house. And then he found himself homeless on the streets. So you could see the vulnerability there. He was rejected by his family. He was on the streets fending for himself. And a trafficker saw this vulnerability and offered him a job opportunity in a traveling sales crew, going door to door, um, selling things. And there's lots of power and control dynamics that happen in those situations where they owe the company store, like they owe gas, they owe for the hotels that they're staying in, and all of a sudden they never make any money, and they're always in debt to their trafficker. And so that's another situation where they're yearning for a family, they're yearning to belong, and they're also trying to just, you know, take care of themselves. Who are the traffickers that are taking advantage of people this way? Yeah, I would love to tell you that here's a perfect picture of a trafficker. Unfortunately, they are all just average people who walk the streets just like you and I. They come from a variety of backgrounds. They're both male and female. They come from a variety of nationalities and um, situations. So traffickers really are everyday people. We have seen traffickers who live in suburban communities here in Colorado. We've also known traffickers who are business owners who own restaurants in places like Boulder. We also see traffickers who are what you would think of as a pimp or someone like that. And so they really run the gamut. Explain this restaurant trafficker. Was this an actual person who had a trafficking operation in Boulder? Yes, this is a real um, situation where it was a business owner. He owned a a Thai restaurant in Boulder. He was a Thai national, and so he recruited individuals from his home country to work in this restaurant and created this trafficking situation where those particular workers were never paid for the work that they put into this restaurant, and there was a lot of power and control dynamics in there. How did the traffickers find the victims? How do they put two and two together and find folks who are vulnerable? Yeah, so they use a lot of different tactics. Uh, One of the main tactics that are being used, especially with the internet and the, you know, the, the advent of social media. So there's lots of different avenues to engage in conversation via social media, either developing a romantic relationship with an individual and finding out through the development of that relationship what those vulnerabilities are, or through posting of a job opportunity and posing as a potential employer. You also have trafficking situations that, as I mentioned earlier, that happen through family members. Like someone sees that their family member is vulnerable, that they owe a lot of money, that they're in need of a job. And so they might use that as an opportunity to recruit. But we've also seen sex trafficking situations where the victim is the child and the trafficker are the parents. And in that situation, it's not really recruitment. It's more about having a secret between the parent and child, much like we see in child abuse cases. As I mentioned earlier, it it feels like this is something that happens to other people in other places. When you think about the U.S. compared to other countries, is trafficking more common elsewhere? 
That's a really great question with a not-so-simple answer. We know that people have done prevalent studies globally that show that over 21 million people are estimated to be in human trafficking across the globe. We haven't seen those same prevalent studies focus solely on the United States, although we do know that trafficking is happening all over our country and specifically in Colorado. We here in Colorado have seen an increase in human trafficking cases since we passed our laws in 2014, and we're seeing a regular steady flow of victims being served by our service providers every year. And tell me about those laws. Um, What do they do uh, to try to tamp down on human trafficking? In 2006, Colorado passed its first human trafficking statutes, which were not very successful, only a couple convictions between 2006 and 2014. And so the legislatures saw that there was a real need to revamp our laws in 2014 and really align our Colorado state statute with federal definitions of human trafficking. So that's what took place in our 2014 revision of our statutes. And we've created three human trafficking laws a human trafficking law and involuntary servitude, which is our labor trafficking law. And then we have a sex trafficking of adults and a sex trafficking of minors law. And the reason why we have the two different laws between sex trafficking of adults and minors is that the Colorado state law has really mirrored federal law to say that those who are under 18 engaged in the commercial sex industry are victims of human trafficking and do not have to prove the elements of force, fraud, or coercion that are the basic elements of human trafficking. And for those who are convicted, what are the penalties? Yeah, we've actually had a really great success rate in terms of convictions and the sentencing that we've received. The minimum sentencing that we're seeing is around eight years in Colorado, and we've seen sentencing go all the way up to 400 plus years. There's been a lot of awareness uh, about systemic racism and equity Is human trafficking something that disproportionately affects people of color and those who are low income? Certainly. Human trafficking, the root issues of human trafficking really come down to things like poverty and housing instability and all of those types of elements that fall into the equity. And so we do see equity playing a big role in the issue of human trafficking and the types of victims that we're seeing people who become more vulnerable and susceptible to these other types of systemic issues like poverty, homelessness, lack of education. Those are all root causes, too. And this issue of social media playing into trafficking. What about conspiracy theories like QAnon? Uh, How do they affect efforts to get a handle on human trafficking? Yeah, it's been an interesting year with the QAnon and the Save the Children movement. What I've seen is that these movements have allowed people to open their eyes to the issue of human trafficking. However, they provide a lot of misinformation and inaccurate information about the the crime of human trafficking, which ultimately harms the anti-trafficking field. Mm. We've seen a lot of uptick of calls to the National Human Trafficking and the Colorado State Human Trafficking Hotline of unsubstantiated claims based on these conspiracy theories which ultimately takes away the time of hotline advocates on calls that are really related to human trafficking. So it is really important that we are able to provide them accurate information about the issue. We're really excited that this public awareness campaign will really help give the truth about this hidden crime. How does the pandemic play into things? The pandemic has regularly revealed to us many existing inequalities that happen in our society and therefore specifically to human trafficking. We see already susceptible populations kind of bearing the brunt 
of the health and education and economic consequences of the pandemic. And so when it comes to human trafficking, you know, restrictions of movement, heightened levels of isolation, like similar to domestic violence. So people are staying in their situations, feeling like they're unable to escape because of the pandemic. Then there's also a lack of services because many shelters and other service providers are having to, you know, make changes based on COVID. And then you have lack of jobs and high unemployment, which obviously puts more people in desperate situations. And then finally, we see like the shift in educational systems going way more online. So our children are spending a lot more time in these virtual spaces and with places in social media where there's opportunities for traffickers to engage in conversation with our children. So these kids are more vulnerable. Um, How does a citizen recognize that this is going on in order to call a hotline and say, I think I've witnessed human trafficking? Well, we do hope that our campaign messaging really helps share those narratives of real human trafficking situations. So both victims can self-identify about, oh, that really resonates with the situation that I'm in, Or average citizens can look and say, oh, I think I saw this kind of situation happening in my community, at my restaurant. So looking at ways in which people are being used and controlled, you know, if people are being isolated, they're being watched over, and also other forms of obvious abuse that you would see, like in a domestic violence case, bruising, um, someone who doesn't really know where they are, because a lot of times traffickers regularly move their victims from place to place. And so there's lots of different things that people could be looking for. Maria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Maria Trujillo is program manager for the Colorado Human Trafficking Council. The state launches an awareness campaign next week. The state hotline number is 866-455-5075. We'll post that and a link to additional information at CPR.org. Who starts a business in the middle of a pandemic? It turns out a lot of people. Business applications in Colorado were up 24% last quarter. One of these new ventures is a coffee shop staffed entirely by a robot. The cafe, called Robo Esso, just opened in Golden. Its owner is Matthew Jones. And Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. A robot coffee shop sounds custom made for social distancing. Did the pandemic spark this idea? Uh, you know, the, the idea was planted, you know, uh, as a seed uh, uh, years ago, you know, I was working in my coffee shop and I was making a latte and I was just thinking, you know, this seems like this could be automated because it's just, you know, very, you know, it's just rip, out of repetition. So, um, yeah, the idea kind of sparked several years ago. Then I got into learning about robots. And then, um, yeah, once once the pandemic hit, I, I really felt like I had no choice but to, to go all in on automation. And you actually built this robot barista. How much of a background do you have in robotics? I, no, none. None at all. No, I never, never touched a robot before. You know, I'm I'm a, uh, I'm a coffee guy. You know, I, I roast coffee, uh, run a coffee shop. Um and, and, you know, I think that's the thing is like, you know, the robots that are out today, uh, you don't need to be a crazy, smart, genius engineer to, to be able to, to program them. You know, they're, they're, they're very easy to program now. But how do you teach a robot to make coffee? 
Yeah, it's it's literally you 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 take the robot arm and you just move it to where you want and it it essentially records uh it's it's movement motions and everything. So um so in a way the robot is uh you know kind of just moving how I would move and making a latte with with one arm of course. Now, RoboSO is now open in Golden. Uh, I've heard of hotels that have robots, uh, and it hasn't been that successful. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been problems with them. How's the robot working so far? So far, so good. I mean, I'm still babysitting it, you know, just making sure I'm there to uh, pick up the cup when it drops it, I guess, you know. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and that's the thing is like, uh, and there's, there's a lot of, I've noticed that a lot of the um, issues that I'm having now is really human error. It's, you know, I uh, change the, the milk and the tap. And so when it pours the milk, the consistency is different. So then it starts spilling more or I need to uh, adjust the amount of milk that's going into the pitcher, um, things like that. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just kind of just watching and being patient and then um, uh, adjusting things here and there. But it's it's going very smoothly. Um, and uh, uh, it was with the with the with the hotels. Yeah, I've seen those with like dinosaurs checking you in and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, so is the plan that at some point there'll be no human staff at all? Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping, um, you know, I don't know. I don't want to put a time. But, I'm, yeah, in a couple of weeks I could – I should – I was going to leave it open for this interview. I was like, oh, I should just leave it open and give it a <laughs> test run. But I chickened out. I, <laughs> I couldn't I do it. But uh, I, I think um, – yeah, very soon. I'm almost there. It's mostly just our menu needs to kind of be updated to what uh, the co what the robot can offer and stuff. What does the robot look like? It's literally an it's an industrial uh, what they call a collaborative robot. So, um, collaborative robot is a robot that can work side by side with a human because of the safety features that are built in. Um, and uh, uh, so it's 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 an industrial robot. It doesn't, um, you know, it's not like a, doesn't look like a human. No, 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 not at all. It's just literally a, an industrial robot arm plopped in front of an espresso machine. Right. Yeah. Um. And how's business been so far? So far, so good. I mean, it's it's we just opened, like so. I, I don't expect uh, uh, you know a bunch of people and stuff right now, but uh, it's going good. You know, it, it's what's what's amazing to me is just um, opening. You know, opening come in get the milks hooked up, turn the robot on. And then, you know, it's just kind of hanging out. It's kind of weird. I don't know. And then, uh, you know, I talk to the customers, of course. Um, but then, uh, you know, when it's closing time, it's, you know, just rinse the, you know, rinse the taps out, clean the things up and done in like 15 minutes. So it's, it's, it's very different just from, cause it's like, you know, when I was running a coffee shop before it was, there was always something to do. There was always something to do, but, um, yeah, didn't uh, it's just a lot different now. Is the idea that you can save money eventually by having a robot on staff? Oh yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, if if you have a robot on staff, it's gonna cost you, you know, on average about like five dollars an hour, maybe less than that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, if you yeah, the cost savings could be pretty immediate. And I imagine some of the business will come from people who are curious about this. What are they saying about yeah. the whole operation? Well, the first question I get is, you know, are you an engineer? Like, how how did you create this and stuff like that? But uh, um, you know, it's it's really uh, yeah, it's it's I think for a lot of people, just understanding how um, yeah, the, understanding how this is all 
working? Like, how is this, does the robot, is it programmed to do that? Or is it just, is it artificially intelligent? I don't know. So a lot of people are just curious on how all the, everything works together. So is the goal to be the Starbucks of robot cafes? Um, no, not necessarily. I, I think, well, when I was building it out, I think that's kind of what I, I was thinking. Oh, cool. I'll just open up a whole bunch of my own, um, robot cafes. But as, as I, uh, developed it, I, I really saw how, you know, this can really impact small businesses in a huge way. Um, you know, in, in the coffee world, if you're a small coffee shop and you're not selling 200 cups a day, you're, it's really hard to be making money, um, with labor costs and rent and everything. Um, so really, I feel like this, uh, automation technology really impacts those small businesses the most. It would have the most impact for those guys. So you sort of think this is the future for a lot of small businesses Mm -hmm. in food service. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And, you know, I see a lot of automation companies and and they don't, you know, they're, they're, they're saying it out loud that, you know, it's going to be the large corporations and the enterprises that are going to be using automation and to me that kind of scares me because that means what about the little guy you know they can't afford you know an eighty thousand dollar robot so um so yeah making it so that it's accessible for small businesses is is kind of the the key here do you ever think this is just a crazy time to start a business in the middle of a pandemic and an economic crisis absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it is um but, you know, I, I feel like there's also um, not a lot of uh, choices on the table for not just me, but for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of always I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Um, I've always looked at the word job as a bad word, you know, um, and I always have uh, tried to push like, you know, instead of, you know, pushing this narrative of we need more jobs, we need people to find more jobs, get a job. It's why aren't we asking people to create something? Um, and you know, nowadays with the internet and everything, it's so easy to, to, to have an idea and launch it. So, um, so I think, uh, it's, it is, uh, it is a crazy time, but you know, it's kind of also the, you know, no other option on the table. Yeah. We mentioned new business applications are up. Why is that right now? What is it? Well, I, I think, um, you know, if you can't find a job, make one, you know. Um, so I'm thinking a lot of people are taking their passions and, and starting a little side hustle with it or something. Um, yeah, that that's what I'd kind of think. And and just to wrap this up, are you going to be mm-hmm. able to market this robot to other coffee shops? Yeah, absolutely. Like right now I'm trying to, I'm getting pre-sales going. Um, if, uh, you know, coffee shops are interested, I'm, you know, the, the whole idea is, if somebody, anybody can grab the robot, put it in front of uh, their espresso machine or whatever food service apparatus they need it to work on, and, and the robot could probably do a pretty good job. You know, you just kind of, you know, it, it's it's not so much programming the robot that's difficult. It's all the things around it that, that you need to get to be right. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Matthew Jones is the founder of the Robot Cafe, RoboEsso, now open in Golden. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Subscribe to The Lookout from CPR News to get the big news and get more connected to Colorado. The Lookout newsletter is delivered to your inbox with the big stories from across Colorado every morning. 
Subscribe to The Lookout now at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Dia de los Muertos, the Mexican custom of honoring the dead at this time of year, is growing far beyond the communities that have traditionally celebrated it. It's usually observed at the beginning of November, but Denver artist Norberto Mojardin has extended the celebration through much of the month. Mojardin has transformed an old Walmart in Aurora into what may be the largest Dia de los Muertos exhibition in the United States. The room leads you to a massive candlelit altar with photos of people's loved ones who died. Scattered around the place are huge statues called Katrinas, adorned with dresses made of handmade paper flowers. I sat down with Mojardin at a time when the display was closed to the public. He told me Dia de los Muertos is by far his favorite tradition. That's when I unite with my grandmother, you know, and this celebration, I started it five years ago, and it was something that I always asked my grandmother when I was a kid, why do you have the little altar, and why do you have the candle always on, because it was always on, and she told me, well, because this way, my parents, they will never go away. So she had an altar to her parents, and then you created an altar to your grandmother, right? Yes, yes. When she passed, I was not uh, having a comfort zone. I couldn't find it. And so I remember one day, and I said, you know what? I'm here sad when she's with me, but I need to do that. And I said, I'm going to create an altar. So that I created a small altar at my salon. At your hair salon. At my hair salon. So imagine it was colorful and so all these clients that were like, oh, what is that? I've never seen that before. So I started explaining them what was the altar and why I was putting the picture so I would never forget about my grandmother. And she would have the right path to God, you know, by the candle. So anyways, my clients start bringing pictures. They're like, hey, can I put a picture of my grandmother or my son? And sharing the stories, you know, and I saw how this little altar was bringing so much healing for all these other families. So that's how I started with the altar. So from an altar in your hair salon (laughs) to this huge (laughs) altar. It's incredible. The scale of this is enormous. What inspired you to do it like this? The kids. You know, for me, when she told me that, I was a kid. So when I created an altar, it was like me, a kid, doing it. So everything I do, I said, this is like a coloring book. You know, full of stories and full of color. (laughs) Could you look out into this vast room and tell me what we're looking at? Well, first of all, when you come into the entrance, you see the path. That means the path that we create to the death. And at the end, right at the end, 
they get to see the biggest altar. So this is a beautiful altar up yes. front. People will come, make a couple of flowers, and I would teach their kids also a little bit of how to make the flowers. And talk about what these flowers are. Are they part of the tradition of Dia de los Muertos? Yes. In Mexico, it's a flower called Simpasushil. That flower is specifically for the Day of the Dead that we use, and it's beautiful. And Okay, and these are paper. But this one is paper. Why? Because in the north of Mexico, my grandmother, we don't have flowers. We live in the desert. But my grandmother, she was the one that would make all the flowers for the people in the town. Mm. For when, whenever the Day of the Dead will come, she will sell all those beautiful arrangements made out of paper. So imagine now it's me doing it for her. Yeah, and we're looking at a path leading up to this huge altar. So huge, yes. and, and the path is lined by these paper flowers that mm-hmm. are just so colorful. Yes. And when we get up to this altar, it looks like there are just hundreds of pictures. Yes. Uh, this altar, I always put it open to the community. And as you see, people have bring their pictures, and we offer them their bread, fruit, Beans, yes, it looks like beans, cookies. Um, tequila, they like tequila. <laughs> you know, anything that that person liked, that's what we try to bring to the altar. And the story says that they come and they smell, and that's how they feed the spirit. So this is offering to them, to them. some yes. of the things that they would have liked. Uh-huh. Like this one right there in the middle is my grandmother. Oh, <laughs> she's in the center of <laughs> right this altar. There, yes. Oh, beautiful. And she, she always loved the Holy Trinity and is right next to her, as you see. It seems like so many cultures look at death as just sad and, and they mm-hmm. want to cover it up and not talk mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, this seems to be celebrating the yes. sadness of loss and the greatness of the person that you've lost. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of uh, teenagers, we lost them a couple months ago, and I invite those mothers because they were in the news, and and I invite them, and I give them a special place for them to really do the altar for their son. Tell me about one of those younger kids Mm -hmm. that passed away that's represented here. Um, Well, uh, right here, and this one right here, the story about him, they were just going into, went to cut lunch, and they were hit by another driver, and passed away. And we have some of them, they went into the suicide or two. Mm-hmm. And for me, that shouldn't happen. You know? <laughs> Not our kids. And our message is always to give them love, you know, to give them care, and not to wait for them not to be here with us anymore. But at the same time, now that they are not with us, we want to bring comfort to those parents to understand that you know, either it was destiny or it was God the one to take them first. But here is, they are with them. They're not going anywhere. And just like the altar to your grandmother gave you a feeling of peace, you're trying to offer that to other people in the community who have lost loved ones at all different ages. Definitely, definitely, because it's not easy not to have someone you love next to you, touch him, hug him, kiss him, ask for an advice. But you know what? If we believe in God, whatever religion you are, why we're not going to believe in the spirit of someone that you knew? 
Along with the giant altar, large Katrina statues, skeletons, each adorned in luxurious attire made of paper flowers, are placed all around the room. Mohardine took me to see a couple of them. Each has its own name. Okay, so we're going to go look at Sasha. Can you describe what Sasha looks like? We're talking about, what, uh, 15 feet tall. Yes. It's, it's an angel. It's an angel. She has a lot of fashion. And, Big purple you know, wings. Purple wings. The makeup is more bright yellow. A huge dress draping all the wall around with uh, red, pink, purple flowers. And tell me a little bit about Sasha. Well, you know, we created it this piece thinking about our gay community. And the message that we put right here on the side is like, Sasha giving an advice, or this Katrina giving an advice, how talking for those people that they have died out of hate in our gay community, people that they have been under discrimination and they end up suiciding themselves, or they have failed, like they have lost everything when their parents throw them out of their home only for being gay mm -hmm. or for being themselves. So this one is dedicated to all of them to give them love, understanding, support. Even though they're not here with us anymore, we are thinking of them. And what does Sasha mean to you personally? That I created it 25 years ago when I was a homeless here to perform one day that they told me, if you dress as a woman, we're gonna give you $30. At the time I didn't have no food. So I was like, oh, sure, why not? <laughs> From that night, I made, they gave me, I remember, like $300. But from there on, I was able to work basically for less than a month. I already had a place to live because thanks to Sasha, I was able to survive. And you have a statue here named Covey dedicated to this COVID pandemic. It's a large white skeleton. And I think you said that it's the only one without a smile yeah. on its face. How do you see this display in the context of the pandemic when so many people have died, particularly many Latino citizens? Yeah, you know, because is that one is in honor of our, all our loss that we had. And we don't have nothing to smile that one because we have had so many lasts unnecessary when we could have prevented. And particularly in the Latino community yes. as well. Yes, yes. And when you know that we could have prevented, when they told us it was already on top of us and all these innocent people that they have died and more that they didn't even saw their bodies anymore, they couldn't say goodbyes. Because so many couldn't go into the hospitals to see their loved yes, ones. Yes, and especially on the Mexican community, like for us, the bodies, normally we don't cremate. We honor the bodies for certain days to honor it. And so to stop the possibility of seeing the person again, to have the blessing the way we normally do, is very shocking. And I know a lot of people, they still suffering a lot. You've had a lot of people come through here. What do you hear people talking about when they're wandering through? 
You know, uh, in moments they laugh, in moments they cry. That's the way I see them. A lot of people, when they come, they feel like we brought Mexico to them, you know. So I see a lot of healing to the people, you know, and happiness to them. And that makes me very, very happy, you know, to see them go through the process in a more positive way. And people from other religions, they come to me and they tell me, you know what, I'm from this religion and we don't celebrate this, we don't do that. I just wanted it to come and you blew me away. That's for me, it's like, wow, because you are educating people from different religions how positive this is and have fun with death, not to be scared of death. You know, this is a celebration of color, you know, so and diversity. So, <laughs> Norberto, thanks so much for talking with us. No, my pleasure. That was Norberto Mojardin talking up his Dia de los Muertos exhibition in Aurora. It's open Friday through Sunday for the next few weekends through November 22nd. Space is limited due to COVID-19 restrictions, so visitors need to make reservations in advance. This music is normally one of the harbingers of spring, the soft tones that accompany the telecast of the Masters. But this year, the golf tournament was pushed for the first time to the fall because of the pandemic. It begins today. The normally mentally and physically draining 72-hole marathon could be a simple walk in the park for this man. Bryson DeChambeau is indeed a U.S. Open champion at Winthrop. Bryson DeChambeau's unorthodox approach to the game helped him win golf's last major championship, the U.S. Open, in September. It made him one of the favorites to win the Masters. A native Texan, DeChambeau has a notable Colorado connection. His trainer, Greg Roscoff, is the owner of Muscle Activation Techniques in Englewood. Before the tournament began, he spoke with CPR News' Alexandra McMahon. Greg, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we're talking a couple of days before the tournament starts. Play will have already begun in Georgia when this airs. How confident is DeChambeau that he's going to win a second consecutive major? I think he's feeling pretty good about it. He was out here last week, and I know he came here after he had had the opportunity to play at Augusta. And he just, I mean, I think he's very confident after winning the U.S. Open. And from that point forward, this has been his primary focus. And one thing I know with him is when he puts his mind to something, <laughs> he, he achieves it. I want to talk about the work that you're doing with him. But first, a little background. We called DeChambeau unorthodox. That's based in part because within the last couple of years, he underwent a tremendous physical transformation, increasing his caloric intake to about 6,000 a day, a total that often includes up to seven protein shakes in a day. DeChambeau has gained close to 50 pounds. His strength is one reason why he's been able to hit that golf ball so far and basically overpower a lot of the courses he plays on. You were working with him when this got going. How much input did you have in that process? 
uh, from the strength side of it, it's the the whole process. Uh, basically, what we've done is kind of reprogram his neuromuscular system in order to tolerate greater amounts of force, which has allowed him to see the significant increases in strength that he's seen. The dietary side of it, he he chose that side. He he wanted to gain the weight and, and put on the mass because he looks at it as, I mean, uh, force equals mass times velocity and the greater amount of mass that he has on his body, the, the uh, greater force production he can create. We've monitored his weight gain by how his body tolerates forces. And that literally has to do with the idea, I mean, with carrying around 50 extra pounds and swinging the club at the velocity he swings it at, we just have to make sure that he wasn't setting himself up for injury. And so as long as he's been able to continue to increase his strength while maintaining and increasing his flexibility, uh, he's gotten the green light on the weight gain side of it. So you haven't seen any negative effects to this uh, immediate weight gain? Not at all. Okay. And Colorado is off the beaten path as far as the PGA Tour is concerned. How did you two get together? So Bryson's coach uh, from Fresno, California, I actually moved here from Fresno almost 25 years ago. Bryson's coach um, had always been familiar with what I do with muscle activation techniques. And so when Bryson went to college at SMU, we actually set him up with one of the practitioners that I've trained in the techniques of of muscle activation techniques. So he had some experience with the process while he was at SMU. And then once once he went pro, uh, Mike Shai, his coach, reached out to me to, to see if I'd take him on as a client. And so from that point forward, probably just over three years, he's been coming out here on an average of about every three weeks. Mm. And when you mentioned uh, his time at Southern Methodist in Texas, I know that he studied physics in college. And since then, he's actually been likened to a mad scientist because along with those protein shakes and massive weight gain, DeChambeau also has drawn attention for constantly tinkering with his golf clubs and equipment, uh, you know, just doing things outside of the conventional norms. Um, But I know it's made some people in golf uncomfortable, and that discomfort has only grown as he's achieved more and more success and climbed higher and higher in the world golf rankings. So I want to ask you the same question that's being asked with greater frequency. Is Bryson DeChambeau breaking golf? Uh. I don't know. If, I mean, maybe I don't know if one person can break golf, but he's going to break all the uh, the traditions of it and in the way that he's hitting the ball. But it, it is exactly like you said. He's he's looked at as the mad scientist, and and he's doing things that nobody else in golf has done. Everything from the same length clubs to, I mean, even the the loft on his driver and the amount of strength training that he's doing. Many times with golf, they've I mean, they've said working out with weights and getting stronger can be detrimental to the golf swing. And so I think he's proving a lot of the traditional beliefs wrong. Um, But it's going to take another unique individual like Bryson to be able to follow up and do all the things that he's done with the success that he's done it with. When you first met, what were the goals that he wanted to accomplish and, and why were you the person to get him there? The, the main goals were he was having some low back and, and hip issues, uh, both limitations and range of motion, along with pain when he would play for extended periods of time. And so those were his first goals, was just from, from a neurological standpoint, just to be healthy and knowing that he was 
23, 24 years old. He didn't want to see what's happened to other golfers. As they age, they start to break down and they can no longer perform at a high level. So he wanted to kind of nip it in the bud real quick and, and get ahead of the game. And so he sought me out knowing that with muscle activation techniques, that's what we do. We prepare the body to be able to tolerate forces in order that it can reduce the risk of injury and, and maintain health along with improving performance. So I think that was his main goal coming to me was just to be healthy. And once we got to that point, then we took it to another level. And that's when we started the, the high intensity exercise side of it. Well, and I know that the work that you do with DeChambeau, you know, it looks entirely different than just going to a gym and doing a bunch of bench presses. You know, can you tell me a little bit more about what that muscle activation technique looks like? What are what kind of motions are you putting his body through? Yeah, so so basically I look at the, the way that the body functions. And there's particular movements that uh, the structure dictates the movements that should happen at each joint. And so we literally go through his body movement by movement, really muscle by muscle, to make sure that all the muscles in his body can perform the function that they're designed to function. And so when, when you think of a bench press or a deadlift or a squat, that's a total body motion and where the body, I, I always say the, the body will get from point A to point B most efficiently with what it has to work with. So it can compensate to achieve the motions that we're trying to attain. And so in this situation, literally from a golf swing and, and looking at core strength and core stability, I mean, spinal rotation is the number one movement in golf. And, um, and that movement, really, when we think of conventional core training, people don't even train those movements through their full ranges of motion. And you think of all the movements that do occur in the spine, from spinal rotation to spinal side bend to spinal flexion to spinal extension. I mean, there's all these individual movements that have muscles that are designed to perform that function. I always say the integrated system is only as good as the function of its isolated parts. So we look at all of these isolated movement patterns and know that if each isolated part is strong and can move through its full range of motion, then the integrated system is going to, to that dynamically, the body is going to move very efficiently when all the isolated parts are working properly. So it's a completely different training program than you'd see. I mean, I've been with the Broncos for 25 years and familiar with their strength programs, and, and it's completely different than what you'd see a, a football player or, a, or any other type of athlete perform. Wow, yeah. And I know you've compared this whole process to something that a lot of us in Colorado have probably experienced at one time or another, you know, walking on an icy sidewalk. Yeah. And so literally, when, when I always say whenever you have stress, trauma or overuse, the resultant inflammation alters the communication between the nervous system and the muscle system. And so the body and the muscles just can't fire the way they're designed to fire. So it's like having loose battery cables. that You just don't get the proper input and then the muscles can't contract. So they can't do their job to stabilize joints and protect you from injury. And so that's an instability issue. So you think about when you walk on ice, the first thing you do when you walk on ice is you tighten up as a protective mechanism. So the natural neurological response is when the body senses instability, it tightens up as a protective mechanism. 
And every modality out there typically focuses on the tightness, that we need to loosen up the muscles that are tight because that's what's causing your problem. And actually, the tightness is literally part of the protective mechanisms of the body due to this instability issue, which is the altered communication between the nervous system and the muscle system. So muscle weakness is actually the cause of muscle tightness. So we actually go after the root of the problem and address the weakness issue. And these, I, I always, in simplistic terms, we tighten battery cable to improve the communication between the nervous system and the muscle system. So then the muscles can fire through, you know, I mean, on demand and through their full ranges of motion so they can do their job to stabilize joints and protect us from injury. Wow. Yeah. It seems like something that everyone could benefit from, you know, that kind of uh, process and, and being able to master that. Yeah, and literally all the aches and pains that we relate to aging have to do with failure of the muscle system. When the, when the muscles can't tolerate forces the way they could when we were young and athletic, um, we get progressively weaker over time. And as those muscles get weaker over time, they can't tolerate the forces that come with everyday life. And that's been, you know, as I mean, the general public is saying, wow, I can't do the things I used to do 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And it's because the muscle system is failing on us. So this process is for everybody. Yeah. So does this mean if I started working with you, I could eventually win the Masters? <laughs> the, one th- the one thing I've always said is I, I can say it personally because I, I'm not a great golfer. And I, can, I can't make a bad golfer a good golfer, but I can make a good golfer a better golfer. <laughs> ah, yeah. Okay. Greg, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. All right. Thank you very much. Greg Roscoff is the founder and owner of Muscle Activation Techniques in Englewood. He's the trainer for PGA Tour golfer Bryson DeChambeau. This week, the U.S. Open champ is trying to win a second consecutive major title, the Masters in Augusta, Georgia. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR News.